Hey, good morning, Veritas. Um, man, I'm glad that we are able to get together, even if it's like this. Um, to be honest, when we made the decision that it'd be wisest for us to uh, have everybody stay at home and uh, not have in-person services, uh, there was part of me that thought, man, do we need to hit pause on what we're doing in our journey through 1 Corinthians and maybe pick another passage that would be I don't know, maybe appropriate to this cultural moment that we're having. I mean, we've got this election, we've got this uh, new surge in the outbreak of COVID. Um, but as we talked about that as an elder team, uh, the conclusion was pretty quickly, actually, that no, God is the one setting the pace for everything that we're going to go through when we choose to just grab a book of the Bible and work our way through it, the topics that we come up against are probably not topics that we would choose or run toward, but there they are and, and we just are taking them as they come to us. And actually, I feel like now, by God's providence, this topic we're going to talk about today might even be especially delivered into your homes. Um, Here's what I mean by that. This is the kind of passage that I almost wish I could just sit down with you and work through with you rather than kind of talk at you about. Um, so in some ways, maybe you being in the comfort of your home or, or wherever you are and me just being in my backyard here uh, will be the most appropriate way to approach this topic. Okay, we're talking a lot in chapters of First Corinthians chapter 6 and seven and even eight about uh, sexual immorality, this week about marriage and divorce, some very deeply personal issues. And you just need to know, guys, that uh, what we experience here in the West, in Iowa, in 2020, with a like sexual revolution um, all over again, uh, is not, there's nothing new under the sun. It certainly would not have been new to anybody living in Corinth in the first century. Um, in fact, we might even blush at some of the sexual excesses that were going on in Corinth. Um, so the, the author, Paul the Apostle, is fully aware of the kinds of sins that are prevalent in a culture, in a society, and the mess that it can make. And he just dives straight in with grace and truth to both reveal and speak directly to us about what's going on, but also to offer hope and life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, the Corinthians, again, are a hot mess. Now the gospel has come to them and they need to know, how do I start from where I'm at and turn things right side up, okay? Things are actually turned upside down. We need to turn things uh writes it up. We need the mind of Christ. That's what we learned back in chapter six. Like, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Uh, because that mind of Christ seems so foreign to the mind that I have had and the mindset of the world in which I live. So just know this, Jesus is very slowly, but decisively and deliberately going to transform our thinking. Okay. Jesus is not, uh, settled with letting us stay right where we're at. When he invades our hearts and souls with faith, uh, that faith is within us to transform us, to, to help us to think differently, to act differently, to live a whole new way of life. And, th and that's the beauty and the joy and the power really of the text that we're going to be going after today in, in 1 Corinthians. 
Before we get there though, what I want to do is show you what right side up looks like. So if, if we're upside down and Jesus is going to turn us right side up, what does right side up actually look like? Where's this thing heading? So to do that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, first of all, okay? Genesis is that book that shows us from the beginning, this is God's plan. This We have a creator God that has design and purpose in what he has done in creating us. The very first verse of Genesis, the very first book of, of the uh, verse of the whole Bible, right, is in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God is already there and he's the one creating. He's the one setting everything in order all the way through chapter one. And then when you get to chapter two and get down to verse 18, this is what the scripture says about that, that creating moment. Uh, in the very beginning, it says, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper corresponding to him. And the Lord God formed out of the ground, every wild animal, every bird of the sky brought each uh, to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, that every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. There's that word again, corresponding to him. We saw it back in verse 18 as well. We're going to come back to that. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh um, at that place, and then the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother, and, and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. Okay, um, a couple of key thoughts, and then we're going to uh, bust our way to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First of all, that word corresponding, I pointed that out as we were uh, reading it. It's a beautiful, rich, full of texture uh, Hebrew word that means kind of uh, set up against, opposite from. In other words, you can even see it in, in the narrative. There's Adam and suddenly he comes face to face with Eve and he, and he looks at this one and she corresponds with him. Uh, oh, that's not a lion or an eagle or, you know, a lightning bug, you know, all these other things I've been naming and seeing in God's creation. Oh, she looks a lot like me. That, that looks like something that, that resembles me, but not perfectly. He's not looking in a mirror. He's not seeing somebody just like him somebody that corresponds with him. Actually, he is mystified uh, beautifully. In fact, he breaks out in song. Uh, the, those verses there are actually his song that he sings as he, as he reflects and realizes, oh, she's corresponding. Um, my weaknesses are made up by her strengths. Um, what I don't have in this world, she does. And it's beautiful to me. And I'm attracted to that. And so the two become one, which is the other thing that I want to talk about, is that uh, he brings them into a bond. The the Hebrew word there for is bond, that they come together and they become one flesh. Now that happens physically. There's a physiological aspect of that. But it's more than that. It's a soulish bonding. It's in fact such that what is said there right away is even before families existed, he's trying to set a, a precedent that uh, when you find a corresponder, when, when you're walking through life and suddenly come face to face with that one that you say, oh, that that is the one I want to spend the rest of my life with and make that bond. You actually leave the family unit that God has brought you up 
through and, and from, and you say, oh, I time for me to start a whole new family, a, a whole new unit. I am now one with, with this person, and that's going to last for the rest of my days. And even that very last verse, both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Um, that verse is not just there to give us giggles, you know, or make us blush a little bit as we imagine that moment. He's actually setting up what will happen in the very next chapter. I mean, you turn the page in your Bible at chapter three and every, all that beautiful order, all that beautiful design, all the, all just the beauty of all of creation is torn apart, wrecked because of sin. And suddenly they are covering themselves and they are shamed and there is guilt and everything is just shattered. This beautiful moment that we see in chapter two comes crashing down. So, um, when marriage is right, pre-Genesis 3, pre-sin, pre-the fall, when we're still locked into chapter 2, the way things ought to be, beautiful, God-given, physical intimacy is protected in the bond of marriage. God intended for us to delight in the physical union of man and woman together. It is to bring us delight. It is to be a thing of beauty. It, it is to be attractive to us. And it is protected and nurtured in the bond of marriage. There, it is there without shame, right? Without guilt, without anything that could hinder. Sin comes and everything changes. And in fact, even within the book of Genesis, guys, virtually every sexual sin, the destruction even of marriages, begins right away in that opening book. So there's kind of nothing new under the sun. We live east of Eden. We live from Genesis 3 on in a place that's known sin now for many, many generations. But just know it didn't take long before what God had designed to be very beautiful um, came crashing down. Okay, so let's ask God to give us the mind of Christ. What would it look like for him to restore us back to that beautiful template of what marriage could and should be by his beauty and and design okay so let's let's now go to first corinthians chapter 7 because paul is looking at a group of people in corinth writing to them and uh he's trying to help them pick up the pieces because they made a royal mess of things as have we and now he wants jesus right to renew their minds and renew their lives so let me read for you uh first corinthians chapter 7 Starting in verse 8, he says, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Okay, the, the very first thing that I, I want you to know um, is that Paul is going to start by actually addressing people who aren't even married. And in fact, what he wants to say is, uh, oh yeah, in the created order, there is a, a beauty when corresponding ones come together to form uh, something brand new, but it's also a beautiful thing to be single and to enjoy the life that God has given you as a single person, whether it's because you've never been married, whether it's because you've been divorced, whether that's because you've become a widow or widower. If you find yourself in singleness, he says, hey, that's what I am and I'm thrilled and I wish more people could have the kind of life, the fulfillment that I have as a single man. Uh, Jesus Christ was a single man, obviously flourishing and living the, the full life. And so uh, the first thing that he actually says is, 
Um, don't worry if you don't have a corresponding one. Live life to the fullest and see what what Christ has for you on that particular journey. But if you meet a corresponder, if you meet one of those along the way, and you burn in your desire to come together and to form a new oneness in marriage, great. That's that's a great option as well. But but don't disparage singleness. In fact, maybe you should prize that and value that more. Uh, but if you get married, okay, let's let's talk about that as well. I do want to say to uh, many of you out there who are single for one reason or another, you're single right now. Um, man, I want to help you embrace that and, and love that, uh, even if someday there is a corresponding one or not. Um, there's one good book, because we're going to talk about that more uh, in, in the weeks to come, but Sam Alberry has a great book, and we're going to have some at the Resource Center when we get back uh, all together. But Sam Alberry has this book called Seven Myths About Singleness. Uh, he's a single man, adult man, a pastor, and uh, I would love for you to read that book. I would really recommend that book, Seven Myths About Singleness, Sam Alberry. Okay, so if you're single, celebrate it, okay? That's what he's saying right off the bat. If you're single, celebrate it, embrace it, that's a beautiful calling. It's the calling that he has responded to. But then he goes on, and the, the second group of people that he's going to be referring to is, if you're married, uh, I've got a word for you, and that's going to be stay married. If you're single, go ahead and stay single, or you can get married wherever you want. But if you're married, stay married. Okay, look at what he says now in verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Okay, those two verses, verses 10 and 11. Paul just gives an unvarnished, unqualified biblical principle, stay married. Okay, now he does not mention that Jesus gives this exception clause back in uh, the book of Matthew a couple of times, actually, in the book of Matthew, uh, verse uh, chapters 5 and chapters 19. Um, because there Jesus talks about the exception where if one of the two spouses introduces immorality into the marriage, then there's, there's reason for you to be able to divorce, to break up that marriage. It's, it's such a vandalism to what marriage ought to be that that would be grounds for stepping away from that. Okay, but I just want to say, I'm saying that for a moment because I want to acknowledge that is certainly in the scriptures. Uh, but Paul actually doesn't even go there, right? Number one, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 is not intended to be a full handbook on all things about marriage uh, or divorce or anything else. So don't make it hold more weight than it intends to hold. Uh, there are other parts of the Bible that speak to other aspects of this, right? Um, but what he does want to say very clearly is, look, uh, when we have the mind of Christ, when we've been transformed, we don't think of marriage as a temporary thing. We don't think of marriage as uh, something to be disposed of. We value it because we recognize God has intention in marriage, and so I'm not to separate. Um, so guys, just in this moment, I just want to acknowledge I've talked to a lot of people who have experienced divorce, some within my own family. Okay, this has come very near to my life and I just want you to know that universally, universally, divorce is one of the most painful, vandalizing, I'm gonna use that word again, vandalizing, soul-wrenching things that a person can go through. 
I don't know of somebody who's gone through divorce or has been even near uh, divorce that would really say anything else. It, it can be one of the most terrible tragedies that we can go through in the human experience. If that's part of your story, okay, um, you have one, just know this, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. That is not where he's going to go in this passage. You are not marked with some kind of, of sin blemish that others cannot relate to, and you are just going to singularly be kind of marginalized and set off to the side by God and by his people. That is not true, and that is certainly not what he's saying. But you have to know this. You have been through a painful thing that will absolutely have long-lasting ramifications, right? Now, the beauty is, in the gospel, like it says in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You can't out-sin God's ability to overgrace it, okay? So there's tons of hope. There's tons of hope. But just know that you have to stare at this boldly in the face and say, wow, this is so different than what um, God would have wanted for me to experience in this life. And maybe for the first time, you're even recognizing how much weight that the Bible puts on marriage. Um, and there's pain when it tears apart, but there's hope. You have not out God's grace, okay? Please know that. Uh, but I also want to say if you and your spouse both have the mind of Christ, if you're both believers and you're even considering divorce, I want to say you, you should actually lean into Christ and say, Christ, what can you do to help me through this? Because I, I want to follow you and I want to experience shalom. And so um, if you're both believers, um, seek the mind of Christ. Don't get a divorce. Okay. That's what he's saying. Now, number one, if you're married, uh, or I mean, if you're not married, celebrate that. Secondly, if you are married, stay married. Okay. And now the third category that he's going to spend the rest of the chapter talking about is what if you're married to an unbeliever? If you are married to an unbeliever, here's what he's going to say. Live in peace, live in peace. Now that's going to play out in a couple different ways, but his, his overall theme for you, if you're married to an unbeliever, live in peace. Let me, let me read those verses for you, starting in verse 12. Okay. But I, not the Lord say to the rest. Now, by the way, let me just hit pause real quick. What he's saying is, up till now, I've been basing my teachings on things clearly brought up from Jesus. He's already laid this foundation. Now he's saying, I'm going to be adding more teaching that you're not going to be able to find back, back in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Okay, I'm going to be adding more to that, but it doesn't make it any less authoritative. He's not just giving color commentary and it doesn't hold weight. No, no, no. He's just saying, uh, I'm now adding more to our understanding of biblical truth when it comes to marriage. Okay. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Okay, 
the reason that Paul feels like he needs to uh, bring some clarity to this situation is because of what he's just been saying in the previous chapters. Okay, so in chapter five, remember when he said a little leaven leavens the whole loaf? In other words, you've got to get rid of the immoral person because that bad influence, that evil is going to seep out into the rest of the community of God's people. When you get to chapter six, he also says something that might be stuck in their brains. They just had been hearing it where where your body actually does matter, right? So that's why, Christian, you can't just go and sleep with a prostitute because your body, not just your soul, your body is actually Jesus' body now. And, and, and you've offered yourself completely to him, so don't desecrate it. So with both chapters five and six in their minds, I wonder if some of them are thinking, if they are married to an unbeliever, oh man, I don't want to desecrate this body of mine that's now Jesus, uh, Jesus' body. No, I need to separate. I need to, I need to run away from this unbeliever so their evil doesn't kind of come back at me. Here's what he's going to do is say, well, actually God has a supernatural way of actually turning that in the inverse. If you're willing to preserve marriage, if you're willing to hold highly that value of marriage because you read about it in Genesis 2 and you know how much God values marriage, he's actually going to very possibly work it the other way. Not only will they not negatively influence you, the prayer is that your standing in Christ is actually going to work the other way and work toward them. So um, he wants them to stay in the marriage if they're married to an unbeliever. And he wants them to pray, pray, pray that there's a sanctifying influence toward them. So that's what I want to point out. You saw in those verses a couple of words like sanctified and holy. I want to explain that a little bit. Those words often are used about Christians who we are now holy before Christ and sanctified, set apart for, toward Christ. But that's really all they mean is set apart. And the way that he's using those words in this particular text is not so much to say, oh, if you're married to a believer, you just kind of get to be sanctified kind of by marriage, kind of like citizenship, you know? Like if I marry an American, then do I get to just be an American because I got to marry one? Do I get to be a citizen of heaven just by getting married to a Christian? No, no, no. He's not going that far. All of us will stand before Christ and all of us need to repent and believe for ourselves if we're going to become Christians. It's not that kind of thing. But he is saying that there's a sanctifying influence that Christians bring into the home. And so there is a sense in which if there's a home with an unbeliever and a believer, that believer is bringing Jesus into that home. There is, there is grace brought into that home. Their mind is being transformed, and that's helping them to be a more sanctified and, and beautiful representation of Christ. And that, that bleeds out in the home. Like that's, a, that's like a, a city set on a hill, right? That light is starting to shine brightly in that home. And so there's, there's hope. And so what he's saying is, if, if there's an unbeliever that will stay in that environment, boy, there's a lot of hope there. Like, man, they're not just, they're not just running the other way because all of a sudden you've brought Jesus into that marriage and into their home. They're willing to stick around. That might have all the earmarks of something God's up to, and they might end up coming to know Christ, that unbelieving husband or wife. Because you're there and you're speaking wisdom and truth and you're becoming a better person. You're becoming a right side up kind of person. And all of a sudden they start seeing that more and more. And they're like, man, I, I kind of want to know where that power is coming from, where that transformation is coming from. And that, you know, is the breadcrumbs leading right to Jesus himself. Now, having said that, 
Um, you do set apart your children and your husband or wife to Christ because of your faith. But Paul is clear in this text, if they leave, if they abandon, if they need to bolt, if they just can't stand you and because of Jesus can't stand you even more because now you've got Jesus, you need to let them go. And he says you're not bound in such cases. I mean, again, heart-wrenching, terrible to go through. But he wants that believer to know, don't, don't feel bound. In fact, when he says live in peace, what he's saying is don't, you know, grab onto them and screaming and clawing and, you know, trying to prevent for everything in you to keep them from going. Of course you want them to stay. Of course you want God's ideal in your home. But if they choose to go, you let them go because you're called to peace. Jesus, what are you doing in the midst of this pain that I need to rest in? Same if they would choose to stay. You're called to live in peace. Jesus, I never thought that I'd be in this situation where I feel this kind of warring going on between me and my spouse because I'm in Christ. You know, live at peace. He's going to guide you in that. He's going to let you live in that. He's going to teach you through that. Oh, they're leaving now? They're walking away from me? Oh, I can't imagine. What, what's it? No, live at peace. Live at peace. Jesus is going to walk with you through it all, right? That's what he's saying. Live in peace. So, guys, um, again, I want to say what this should do is lift and raise our view of what marriage is and what God has in store for us in a beautiful biblical kind of marriage. In fact, marriage is so such a beautiful kind of trophy of God's creation that he holds up, that he even uses marriage as kind of his illustration of what it means to be a Christian. Like in Ephesians 5, he uses marriage as an illustration of what it even means to be united with Christ. Marriage is such a lofty, beautiful example of his grace that when you get to the end of the book, Revelation 21 and 22, he uses this marriage uh, imagery for for what it's going to be like when when Christ comes back to dwell among us and live among us and set up his household with us. So so, um, we should be thinking more of marriage and more highly of marriage because we are now in Christ. We, We need to do whatever we can to preserve marriage and make it a beautiful, beautiful illustration of the transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So friends, um, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, We live east of Eden. We live post Genesis 3. We live a whole lot more, a whole lot more like the Corinthians did in the first century than we do what it looked like in the Garden of Eden, right? Humpty Dumpty has fallen. There's been a great fall. He's shattered. Things are a mess. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, right, can't quite figure out how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But here's what I'm saying. We have made a mess. Jesus wants to walk us through even the pain of putting everything back together again. He's not abandoning us. He's not leaving us. He sees exactly the state that we're in and the pain that we're in. And he wants to walk with us in this hard moment. So what I want to do, and I'm glad again that you're maybe even in the quietness of your home, I just want to pray right now. And I want to pray for our whole family, our whole church family, that we'll receive this word and that this word would actually point us to Jesus and that this would be for us one more anchor 
one more anchor solidifying us in what it means to have the mind of Christ even in the darkest of worlds. So will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, my prayer is that your word in its beauty and power would support and strengthen first, Lord, all those who are now single, uh, even those who have been divorced or are widowed, widowers. Oh, Lord, draw near to them and help them to feel so fulfilled and even on a beautiful journey with you that those who are married um, don't experience. They've, they've got a unique calling and a way to tap into your grace that is is glorious. Give them peace and security in that state that they're in. For those who are married, even some that are in tough marriages, Lord, help them to seek you in a way that would seek to preserve that marriage and, and make that marriage the kind of thing that would bring you glory and bring them joy and the people around them great joy. Lord, preserve marriages. There's a lot of marriages on the rocks even now, maybe even in some of the homes that this message is coming to. The, the hearts are racing and they know what, what state they're in. Oh Lord, would you immediately bring grace and security and your presence into those homes right now, Lord. And for those, Lord, who are married to unbelievers. Lord, give them grace to stay in. Give them grace and courage to stay in. And Lord, if it would be that they find themselves alone because someone that they have given their lives to, pledged their lives to, is now walking away from them, Lord, you will never leave them. You will never forsake them. Your love is unending, enduring. It is passionate and forgiving would you Lord meet them there and so Lord for all of us we need your word so desperately and Jesus I don't know what we'd do without you (laughs) I don't know what we would do but we don't have to think about that because we have you we have your spirit we have your guidance we have your grace and truth and we're counting on it Lord so Lord hear us as we encounter this word and as we lift our voices and our prayers to you in Christ's name Amen. Amen. Guys, love you. Grace and peace. And uh, hopefully we will see you very soon. All right. God bless.